Who would have predicted that the one thing, really the one thing that I could figure out, that the far left progressives and the far right conservatives agree on are the following four words. My body, my choice. Now, I, I know that when progressives use those words and when far-right conservatives use those words, they're not referring to the same thing. I get that. They're applying them to different things, and I'm not suggesting that there's a moral equivalence between those different things that the words apply to. So don't misunderstand. I'm just struck by how both sides, both ends of the spectrum, found themselves using the same slogan in the same year. I don't think, though, it should surprise us. At the heart of our understanding of liberty as Americans uh, is, is this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a, a Latin phrase, this, this thing that is known as the great writ, that was English, the great writ of habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus is one of those phrases that if you read newspapers or if you uh, like, like true crime stories or something, you, know, you will have run across that phrase, but you might not have ever bothered to figure out what does that actually mean? Habeas corpus actually just means you should have the body. And it is a command from the court to the prison official, the, 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 the warden, uh, a, a demand from the court to the warden to produce the actual body of the person that has been detained. Now, why is that important? Because in, in our system of government, and this is written right into our Constitution, we believe that the person who has been detained by the government arrested, put in jail, whatever, they, they have a right to show up in court and challenge their detention. This is written into our Constitution. And the, the whole point of it is to, to give us a, a means, a mechanism of, uh, what's the right word I should use here? But basically, to, to, to challenge uh, an illegal detention an indefinite detention. I, I realize it's kind of maybe hard to conceive of, but in the English-speaking world, it, it, it was the case that at times you could be put in jail, and because this, I'm talking medieval English-speaking world, um, you could be put in jail and you could stay there like for a long, 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 long time. And the government would never produce charges, and the government would never have to defend its, its position. So, so this, this idea of the, the, the writ of habeas corpus, show me the body, it, it is actually at, at the very root of our understanding of liberty. Because if you can't defend the liberty of your own body from illegal or indefinite imprisonment, well, then what kind of liberty can you have? All the other liberties seem to fall down to the ground. This is not 
a lecture on law. And you're, you're sitting here wondering, it's the Sunday before Christmas. Why is this guy talking about the freedom to control our own bodies that's at the root of American liberty? Well, I'm not. It's actually going to get worse. We're going to talk about sex. We're in our unusual Advent series in 1 Corinthians, uh, titled United We Stand. And in our passage this morning, Paul actually addresses this idea, this idea that we should be free to do what we want with our own bodies, to control our own bodies. As it turns out, I think this topic has a lot to do with Christmas. Because Christmas is actually when we celebrate God's decision to take on a body, a body of his own, to become a man, a human being like us. What if God's decision to take on a body, to become a human being, has implications for how we use ours? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're just going to go to the end of the chapter. There are just a few verses here. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 1014. 1014. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 20. Let me just remind you of the context that we're in. Paul has been arguing for the unity of the church. And for the last few chapters, well, really from the beginning, from chapter one, he's been responding to reports that he's heard of things that are disturbing the unity of the church. The biggest one was this rivalry uh, uh, between like favorite preachers. But, but in the last couple of chapters, he's taken up some different reports, right? The report of tolerating unrepentant sin in their congregation or tolerating people going to court with each other. Well, here in our verses this morning, he takes up one last report that he's heard from the people that have come to him. And, and actually, his concern all along has been for, for, the, for the unity of the church because he wants the church to, to, as I've suggested, be like an Advent carol to the world. He wants the life of the church together to be the kind of life that basically says to the world, hey, you don't have to take our word for it that the gospel is true. You can see it demonstrated in the way we're living together. Well, as he continues to address that, his focus in our passage today shifts a little bit. It shifts from his concern about the, the body of Christ that is the church to the body of Christ that is the man, Jesus Christ. And here's the argument that I think he's making in these verses. If you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, he's speaking to Christians here, if you're a Christian, what you do with your body matters because Christ's body matters. What you do with your body matters because Christ's body matters. And he's going to make this point 
in, in kind of three steps. He's going to offer three reasons for this that we're going to work through pr- pretty quickly. He, he's going to first make the point that, look, your body was made for the Lord. It was made, created for the Lord. Second, he's going to make the point that if you're a Christian, your body is part of Christ's body. And then third, he's going to say, look, your body belongs to the Lord. Your body belongs to the Lord. So we're going to take those up one by one as we work through this passage together. You'll be helped if you keep your Bible open. You'll be referring to it a lot. Um, I, I, your fair warning, we're talking about sex today. Um, so uh, parents, just I'm, uh, I'm sure you'll have many questions asked afterwards, and I'm praying for you. All right. First, your body was made for the Lord. Look at verse 12. I'm just going to read the, uh, 12 to 14 here. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. All right, so we're going we're gonna, to we're stop there. In the previous sections, uh, as I mentioned, Paul has been responding to reports of what he had heard, but this time he doesn't start with the report of what he's heard they're doing. He actually starts with their justification for what they're doing. He's not going to actually get to what they're doing for a few more verses. Well, what's their justification for whatever it is they're doing? Well, their justification is everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. It's their version of my body, my choice. That's sort of the ancient version of that phrase. He, he quotes that, that little slogan twice in verse 12, and he refutes it twice. Uh, It's interesting because he doesn't actually ever agree with the statement. He doesn't say it's true. He doesn't say it's not true. He just qualifies it twice in such a way as to undermine it. Everything is permissible for me. Yeah, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me. Yeah, but you shouldn't be controlled by anything. Even if that thing that permissible that, that, that you're doing, even if that thing is, is licit, is, is lawful and allowed. Now, we don't know really where this little slogan comes from, everything is permissible for me. It, it, it's, uh, it was a current idea amongst some of the Greco-Roman philosophers of the day. So it could be that they're just picking this up from their culture. But it's also quite possible that they've taken something that Paul said and they've kind of perverted it, right? Because when he would have explained the gospel to them, he would have explained to them that all those Jewish laws, those ceremonial laws, those food laws, yet, yet they don't apply anymore. They've been fulfilled in Christ, and you're, you're free from that. What's more, he would have said, look, for, for those of you that were trying to use the law to justify yourself to God, yeah, you're, you've been set free from that too. So it's possible that they've taken uh, something that Paul has said that, that, that 
eating shellfish is now permissible for you. You, you, you know, that, uh, no, you don't have to get circumcised anymore. That, 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 that there, there's a, a kind of freedom from the law. There's, there's a permission that they have. It's possible that they've taken it and they've just perverted it. Paul's making clear here in his first two qualifications of everything is permissible for me that, that the freedom of the gospel is not the license to do whatever you want. It's, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that lets you now live however you want and then just chalk it up to grace, like, oh, but it's all forgiven, so it doesn't matter anymore. No, no, the freedom of the gospel is a freedom from sin. And that, that's, that's what we were looking at back in chapter 5 a couple weeks ago. And the freedom of the gospel is a freedom to love one another sacrificially. That's what we looked at last week. But then he quotes another saying of theirs there in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Yeah, right? Duh. What, and, and your point is, Paul? Um, well, again, this is, this is a slogan that, that he's heard that they are using to justify their behavior. And it's actually a, a pretty interesting argument. It's, it's an argument about intended use and natural appetites, right? So you didn't wake up this morning and need to justify breathing. Nope, because... The lungs are for air, and air is for the lungs. And you need to breathe, so you just do it. You didn't need this morning to justify to yourself eating. Now, maybe you needed to justify eating the third donut, but you did not need to justify eating as, as, a, as a simple thing itself, right? No, because you woke up, you're hungry, and the stomach was made to take food and turn it into energy for you. Food is, is designed in such a way that it works really well in the stomach to make life go, right? So this, this is an argument about natural appetites and intended use. The stomach is for food. You don't have to justify putting it in there. Well, it's at this point, now that he gets to this slogan, that we finally learn what this is all about. And we realize how current this argument is. The issue, as we find out there in the rest of uh, verse 13, the issue is sexual immorality. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. We're going to find out in a few verses later, actually, that it's not just sexual immorality in general that is the problem there in Corinth, but specifically people going and using prostitutes to satisfy their sexual needs. But here's the way their argument works, right? Sex is natural. Sex is good. God made us as sexual beings. Uh, it's an, it's an appetite, a desire that, that needs to be filled. And that's what bodies are for. 
That's, that's kind of a, their argument, right? Uh, sex is a need, it's an appetite, and bodies are there to satisfy that appetite. And in their case, especially prostitutes' bodies. That's particularly what a prostitute's body is for, is to satisfy a, a, a sexual need. They're, they're basically kind of saying, like, Paul, Paul, what's, what's the problem? Have you, have you not looked at your body lately? Have you not looked at other people's bodies lately? This is what bodies are for. So why is everybody so hung up on it? I think this is exactly kind of what our culture is saying today to us. There's no moral significance to sex. Sex is just an appetite, an appetite that needs to be satisfied. And frankly, you're free to satisfy that appetite however and with whomever you want, so long as they're consenting and not a minor. That's what our culture says to us. Hookup culture, which is scandalous to conservative Christians, is not scandalous at all to a, a, a non-Christian world. Hookup culture is to sex like the food court at the mall is to hunger. It's just where you go when you need that appetite satisfied. Now, what's interesting in this particular section is that, again, Paul doesn't come out and directly disagree with the moral logic of intended use. In fact, this, this logic that certain things are made for certain things this, this logic as regards to sex, I mean, in Romans 1, he is going to employ this same logic in order to argue against homosexual acts. He's going to argue from nature, from intended use and design. What he rejects here is its use as an absolute standard. That, that just because there's an intended use that justifies its use all the time, anytime, with whomever you want. He points out, yeah, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. That, 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 that word do away with, it's one of Paul's favorite words, and it's, it's a pretty strong word. He's talking about judgment here. There is a judge, according to Paul. There, there's a law that is even higher than intended use and natural appetites. And that judge is the Lord, the Lord who created the body with all of its parts and all of its appetites. And that judge gets to decide what the human body is for and what it's not for. And then Paul states it very clearly in verse 14. Uh, or actually, the, the, uh, the, the end of verse uh, 13. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This is fundamental to understanding Christians, it's fundamental to understanding Christianity. We believe that there's a God 
who made us. We didn't spring unbidden from the primordial ooze. We, we, we are not self-made. No, we understand that there is a creator God, and he made us, and he made us for himself. Now, it, I think it's, it's, it's easy sometimes to think, yeah, he made, he, he made me for himself. He made my soul for him. He made my mind for him. But what Paul is saying here is, no, no, no. He also made your body, your body for him. And then he gives us proof there in verse 14, the, the proof that God actually cares about your body, that he made your body for himself, is, is verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The proof that God actually cares about your body is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that's the greatest proof that God actually cares about your physical body, the, the bones, the, the muscles, the, the, the tendons, the processes that make your body work. Paul says that not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he's going to raise our bodies up by the same power someday. Your, your body has a future beyond your death. Your, your death is coming. So far, the death rate is 100%. So your death is coming, and so is mine. But according to Paul, death is not the end. Your, not just your soul, not just your spirit, your body has a future beyond death. And I don't think we think about that enough. You know, if salvation... The salvation that, that Christianity teaches, if salvation were, were purely spiritual, why have a resurrection? If, 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 if bodies aren't somehow involved in salvation, then, then, you know, Jesus could have come and done everything he did. He could have died on the cross, he could have been buried. And his body could have just stayed there. And, and, and his spirit could have been raised and, and received back to heaven. And, and the Holy Spirit could have somehow or another kind of revealed that to the apostles. And the, the apostles could have gone and preached this message of spiritual salvation through a spiritual gospel that leaves the body behind. And you know, if that had been their message, they would have been much better received in the first century. That, that kind of idea was actually very popular, even amongst total pagans. But that's not what they preached. This is what liberalism does to this day. I, I think I've told this story before, but I, I'll never forget the, the very first uh, Easter service I went to after I'd gone away to college. And I was at, in, in the gardens of the university where I was, and the, the university preacher stood there and was preaching from one of the resurrection passages in the gospel. And she said, and we are gathered here today because we know that on that day, hope won. And there was a resurrection of hope in the disciples' hearts.
because they realized it didn't matter if Jesus' body was in that grave. God had given them the good news of the kingdom. And I just thought, what sort of nonsense is this? If his body still lays in the grave, there's no good news at all. There's no kingdom that's come, and there is no hope that's come. And I might as well just get on with my life. No, it's actually really, really important that Jesus not only was incarnate, that he took on our bodies, but that he actually got up from the dead bodily. And he will be coming back someday in that same body. Friends, that is proof that God cares about your body. He cares about it. He cares about Jesus' body enough to raise it from the dead. He cares about your body because he made your body for him. The question all of us then need to ask is, am I living my life in the body in a way that, that reflects that? Does my life in the body give any expression to God's care for my body, his concern for my body? Well, God doesn't care about our bodies and what we do with them only because he made them. There's a second reason that Paul gives us for why our bodies matter, because Christ's body matters. And, and that's this. Your, your body, if you're a Christian, is part of Christ's body. Your body is part of Christ's body. Look, look at verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body. So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through the gospel, our bodies, not just our souls, have become a part of Christ's body. That's what Paul says there in verse 15. The question is, what in the world does that mean? Well, it would be easy at this moment to say he's talking about the church. That would, that, he's, he's been talking about the church, and it'd be really easy to say, that he's talking about the church. And I think when I went into this sermon, when I started studying for this sermon, I assumed that was what this meant. But the more I studied, the less I became convinced of that. I think actually Paul is referring to our spiritual union with Christ as individual believers, and that in some mysterious way, that actually includes our bodies. Now, don't think transformers here. You, you, you know, for those of you of a certain age, you, you know, the transformers could like all come together and glom onto each other and become this much bigger, like super transformer. Yeah, don't think that. I don't think that's the idea. Uh, I don't know that there's a really good analogy here. That the closest I could come up with is, is thinking about the way that, that the will 
and the, the expression, the reality of our entire federal government is represented in the physical person of a single foreign ambassador, right? That ambassador is part of the government and is representing the whole of the government. Well, I think what Paul is getting at here, especially because it comes right after his comment about God raising up the Lord and then raising us up, I think he's, he's, he's tying into this reality that it is Christ's resurrection life that animates us as Christians. And, and, and therefore, we have been joined to him in a very real way, in a way that includes our bodies, and we now represent him personally in our lives. Now, we talk a lot here, and we've been talking the last few weeks, how we represent him corporately. Together, we represent Christ. But Paul actually is focusing in here on the individual, because he's talking about what do you do with your body? Not our bodies, your body. He's saying that we individually, in our bodies, represent Jesus, because we have been, by the Spirit, joined to him in some mystical but meaningful way. And so he draws his point in the next verse. Should I take a part of Christ's body? So what is he referring to there? When he says, should I take a part of Christ's body? He's referring to your body, if you're a Christian, right? Like if if you're standing here talking to Josh, he's talking to Josh. Josh, should you take part, should you take your body, which is part of Christ's body, you know? Uh, Parker, should you take your body that's part of Christ's body? Mark, should you, he's talking about individuals here. Should I take a part of Christ's body, my body, and unite it with a prostitute? Absolutely not, he says. He couldn't say it more strongly. Absolutely not. Now, he gives us a reason. He, he points to Genesis 2, and, and, and quoting Genesis 2, he says, look, a union occurs in sexual intimacy. Verse 16, don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. A union happens between two individuals in the act of sex that is described as becoming one flesh, even if there's no wedding. Two bodies become one. And the word he uses here, this joining together, is, is, a, is a word that's, that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe what happens in a marriage. There's a bond that happens, a bond between two people, even if the marriage ceremony doesn't occur. That's just a reality, Paul says. And to treat it otherwise is honestly to just engage in acts of self-harm. We engage in sexual acts with another person outside of the context of marriage. We are harming ourselves because a bond is created. But then that bond, because there is no marriage, because there is no commitment ongoing, 
because there is no exclusivity, and that bond gets ripped, and we get hurt, and the other person gets hurt. I had a colleague who used to try to explain what this was like to college students, and she would describe it as like taking two pieces of colored paper, and by the way, this is just an illustration. I'm not saying it's exactly like this, but she said it'd be like taking two pieces of colored construction paper and you know, gluing them together, and then a few hours later coming and separating them. Could you separate them? Yeah. But what's going to be left? Bits of the blue paper stuck to the red paper. Bits of the red paper stuck to the blue paper because a bond happened, and now it's been torn. The world would have us believe that we are nothing more than bodies. We are just bodies. So do with your body what you will. Feed your appetites. It's just going to be in the ground someday. Have as much casual sex as you like. Feed the appetite. But the reality, according to Scripture, is that sex is not an appetite like any other appetite you might have. Sexual intimacy actually does something to you. It does something to you that other things don't do. It, it creates a union between you and the other person. And that union is a profound union. So profound, in fact, that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that the union between a man and a woman coming together as a one flesh union is actually a picture of the more profound union between Christ and his church. There is no such thing as casual sex. And the reality, even in a room like today, is that there are many walking wounded who can attest to the truth of my statement. There is no such thing as casual sex. When we engage in it, we engage in acts of self-harm. Paul's concern, interestingly though, is not primarily about the harm that we're doing to each other or to ourselves in casual sex. His concern in these verses is the harm that we're doing to our relationship with Christ if we are Christians and engage in this kind of sexual immorality. Because he says, look, in this case, it's not just two bodies coming together and then being ripped apart. No, in this case, one of those bodies is not a part of Christ. In, in fact, the prostitute is, is a part of a different kingdom altogether a kingdom of darkness and sin and death. There's no marriage that might sanctify that relationship, that might bring a, a measure of healing and wholeness to it. No, he, he makes it very clear here. There are no neutral bodies out there that you can engage with. 
if you were a Christian, that, 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 that person that you're tempted to hook up with, that, that's not just a body. By no means is it a neutral body. It's actually a body that is a part of a different kingdom that you say you're not part of anymore. When we use our bodies in sexual immorality as Christians, what are we doing? Well, we're calling into question our allegiance. We're calling into question which, which kingdom actually are we a part of? Whose body are we united to? Can we actually represent Christ's lordship in our bodies and at the same time unite our body to, to, to someone who is actually opposed to Christ's lordship? Paul says, absolutely not. And brothers and sisters, I think this is where the church, the corporate body of Christ, is so important for us. We, I don't need to tell you this, we live in a sex-saturated, very sex-positive, sex-obsessed culture. None of us are immune to it. And we need each other's help in this. There's not an adult in this room, and I don't, I don't say this because I've surveyed all of you. I say this because well, I know what my own heart is like, and I know what the scriptures say about us. There is not an adult in this room who is not affected by sexual temptation and sexual sin, what Paul calls here sexual immorality. And the word he uses is a broad term. It doesn't just mean sexual intercourse with a prostitute. If you can think of a sexual sin it fits into the word that Paul uses. He uses the broadest term possible to describe his concern here. We're, we're all in this passage. And left to our own defenses, we're toast. We're toast. Sexual desires are not merely appetites, but they are appetites. And they are the strongest appetites probably any of us will ever experience. And you know who else knows that? The enemy knows that. And so he is, he doesn't even have to be terribly crafty. He doesn't even have to be terribly subtle, though he can be. And he comes at us at this very point, which is why we need each other as a church. So I, I want to ask the members of this church in particular, is this a place where we can turn to one another for help in this most difficult of areas, this most sensitive of areas, this place where we are likely to feel the greatest shame because we've experienced what we probably consider our greatest, fail, our greatest failures. Is this a place where we can confess our sins to each other? Is this a place where we can confess 
our temptations to each other before it gets to sin. Because if we're going to have any hope here, we've, we've, we've got to get out right in front of it. But, but before the sin happens, but that means I've got, to, I've got to have somebody I can talk to about what, what actually tempts me. Is this the kind of place where every member could find at least one other member that they could talk to about these things? If, if you are answering in your own mind, no, or I'm not sure, then I guess what I want to say to you is, all right, then how can you member of this church, begin to make this place a different place? How, how do we need to change in the way we relate to one another, the kinds of things we're able to talk to with one another about? How, how do we need to change in, in, in terms of how we respond when actually somebody confesses something pretty difficult to us? We, we need to be the kind of place where these conversations can happen. You, Christian, are a part of Christ's body. That's what Paul says. And so what you do with your body matters. Oh, but if you're a member of a local church, you're also part of Christ's body, corporately. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that we are God's best means of grace to one another in this very point. What you do with your body matters because Christ's body matters. And if you're a Christian, you belong to that body. Third and finally, Paul says, your body belongs to Christ. Look at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So Paul now draws this conclusion. In light of everything that he said about how, how we were made for the Lord, and he gets to decide the intended use of our bodies, and if we're Christians, we, we are actually part of Christ's body, Here, here's his conclusion, flee sexual immorality. And it's, it's interesting, he comes back again to that general term of sexual immorality, He's talking about sexual immorality of every kind. He's not just saying don't use prostitutes. And then, because he's Paul, even though he's already given us two good reasons, he gives us another reason. Your body belongs to the Lord. He, he notes there in, in verse uh, 18 that every other kind of sin is outside the body. But sexual sin is, is somehow different. It is against your own body. Now, I'll admit that just like, well, what does it mean to be 
a part of Christ's body individually, uh, this is also a hard verse. This is a difficult verse because you don't have to think long before you can think of other sins that are against your body, right? Like drunkenness or drug abuse or gluttony, just to pick three. I think what Paul has in view here, though, is your body not just as tissue and muscles that can be abused or hurt, but your body, the way he was just talking about it, an instrument that God has given you in order to create intimacy, in order to create union with someone else. So, so getting drunk is a sin against your body, but getting drunk doesn't make you one with alcohol. There's no, like, union that happens there, right? Sex is different. Having sex makes us one with another person. And as we've already seen, that union is meant to picture our intimate union with God in Christ. I think this is why sexual sin, though not, let me be really clear here, Sexual sin is not more worthy of hell than other sins. It's not worse in that sense than all the other sins. It's not the super sin, sexual immorality, no. But it does seem to be uniquely damaging to us. And I think it's damaging to us in this unique way precisely because of what it's meant to do. It's meant to create intimacy between two human beings that picture the intimacy between God and his people. And yet, when we engage in sexual immorality, what does it do? It destroys our capacity for intimacy. It doesn't enhance it. It walls us off. It fills us with shame. It makes us want to hide. And so, Paul says... Flee, flee, it's not worth it. And he's right, isn't he? I think every single one of us that is, that is engaged in any kind of sexual immorality, we, we find ourselves thinking, if we're Christians, oh, I'm so glad I did that one. No, we don't think that. No, we look back on past sexual sins, every single one of us who are in Christ as some of our lowest points, some of our most shameful points. We know it's not worth it. And yet, those appetites are strong. And so Paul says, yeah, so be realistic and don't even get in that situation. Don't stand there and fight. Run. Flee. What does it look like for you? Your stage of life, your particular place, what does it look like for you to flee sexual immorality? I mean, for some of us, it means finally going to somebody else and saying, here are my devices. I need you to help me lock them all down. 
because I keep locking them up myself, but when I lock them up myself, I know the key and I can unlock them. For some of us, that's what needs to happen. For others of us, it's like, well, uh, maybe I need to get rid of that Netflix subscription or that HBO Max subscription. Because there's no pornography there, but there's stuff that gets close, and all I need is close. And then I'm off to the races in my mind and in my body. I think for a lot of us, what we need are some people we can talk to. A, a, a small group of people that, that you've given permission to ask anything. And you've promised you won't lie to them. I think one of the best things I ever did in just trying to come to grips with this in my own life was to set up several such groups, right? A group here in the church, a group outside the church, a group that's local, a group that's somewhere else. I know my own heart is way too easy to deceive. It was such a huge step for me to actually get a few different groups of guys together and say, all right, here it is. I'm gonna tell you everything everything I struggle with, what's happened in the past, what my fears about the future are. And I want you to ask me about this. I want you to pray for me. I need you to be a place that I can come with radical honesty, without fear of rejection, but, but knowing that you're also not going to enable and hide my sin if I fall into it. Maybe you need such a group of people in your life. Whatever it is, it's when you're in your right mind, when you're not feeling the temptation, that you need to take these steps. Because when you're in that moment and you're feeling tempted, it's too late. You're not going to take the steps needed. What's on Paul's mind is intimacy with God. I think this is why he wants us to flee. It's not just because of the damage done to us, but rather the damage that sexual sin does to our intimacy with the Lord. He follows up with this question, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Paul's already compared the church to God's house, indwelt by God's Spirit. We saw that a few chapters ago, but now he's applying it directly to us as individuals. Our bodies are temples, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which God gives us. It is that spirit that joins us to be a part of Christ individually. It is that same spirit that joins us together, building us up into being God's house corporately. But, but here, he's applying it to us as individuals. In the Old Testament, remember, the temple was the place where God came closest to his people, where he dwelt with them. 
Now Paul says that intimacy, that, that dwelling together with, it's not in a building somewhere, it's in you. God in you. To take that body and to defile it with sexual sin, oh, it affects far more than our relations with others. It affects far more than our own self-esteem. It affects our intimacy with the Lord. As I read this, I, I found myself going back to Ezekiel. Some of you all were here years ago when I preached through Ezekiel, and there's that awful image, right, of the temple being defiled as, as the Israelites are bringing in their other gods and setting up places of worship to other gods in the temple. And what is God's response? It is to leave the temple. Now, I'm not saying that you lose your salvation because of sexual sin, but I am saying this is how big a deal it is. God is a jealous God. And this intimacy, this intimacy is not something to be thrown away lightly. Paul reminds us in these last verses that our bodies no longer belong to us. We, we were bought at a price, he says. It's, it's interesting that he introduces it here because it's a, it's a completely different image. He's actually bringing in the image of the slave market. That's the language that he's using. I think it's actually very appropriate, right? Because so many of us have found sexual sin to be a kind of slavery. A slavery to our desires, a slavery to our shame. And we feel the brokenness and we feel the lack of power to do anything about it, to change. But, but friends, it is right here, it is right at that point, that point where you feel weakest, that the gospel comes to us with good news. Yes, we have let something else master us. And it, in and of itself, it is a good thing. Sex was created by God. It is a good thing. But we have allowed it to master us. And it turns out that our sexual desires have turned into a very cruel master. Never satisfied. Always wanting more. Friends, the gospel declares that Christ has come and he has paid the price necessary to set you free from that cruel master. The price he paid was his shed blood, his broken body on the cross. He gave his body for your body, for your body and, and all the places where it feels broken, all the places where it feels ashamed. He gave his body for your body.
And all he asks is that we repent, turn away from like going after this master that hates us anyway, and turning to him, trusting him, that his body given for you is sufficient for all of the brokenness, all of the shame that your body feels. The gospel sets us free. It is good news. It doesn't set us free to a life of bodily autonomy, my body, my choice. No, it sets us free to serve a better master, the Lord who created our bodies, the Lord who took our bodies on himself and then gave his body for us. I don't know how you feel at this very moment as you contemplate your own life, your own sexual sin and brokenness. But you need to hear God, the God who made you, is for your body. He's for you. He took on a body to prove it. Is your body for him? It can be. It can be in and through the gospel. If you're not a Christian, I'd love to talk to you about this afterwards. If you are a Christian and you're really struggling on this issue, I'd love to talk to you about this. God is for your body, if you will have him. What we do with our bodies matter because Christ's body matters. He gave his body that our bodies might belong to him. And that means that now we can use our bodies not to be degraded in sin, not in shame, but we can use our bodies, as he says there at the very end, to, to glorify God, to display the beauty of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God. So many of us in our sexual sin feel like anything but beautiful, anything but holy, anything but glorious. Brothers and sisters, your shame has been covered. It has been removed. And in the gospel, you are now empowered to use your body to display the glory of his. And as we do, it's not just our church corporately that is an Advent carol to the world. It is every body in here that is a part of Jesus Christ, that sings, glory be to God. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and just confess to the Lord 
that, that place, perhaps where you feel the deepest shame about how you've used your body. And give that to the Lord, knowing that he gave his body for you. Heavenly Father, you made us for yourself. And we do confess that we have taken what you've made, our bodies, our very lives, and we have used them for other things, to gratify our own desires, to, to try to satisfy ourselves. And for that, we are ashamed and truly sorry. Lord, we ask that you would indeed allow us to grasp the heights and the depths and the breadth of your love for us, including our bodies, in the gospel of your Son. We pray that the, the, the shame, the sorrow that we know would be met in the depth of your joy over us, your love for us in and through Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would not be trapped in that shame, but that we instead would be people who live in the glorious knowledge that you have made us part of Christ's body, and you have now empowered us by your Spirit to sing of the glory of the one who gave himself for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The good news of the gospel is that people like you and me who have known great shame have been brought into great joy. And on this side of Christ's return, those two things exist simultaneously in our hearts. We feel the sorrow, but we also know the joy. And so God calls us to sing, to glorify him with our bodies. And so now, hear God's benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.